0: What's going on, coaches? We had a, a lot of fun last weekend. We got to be on ESPN. I want to thank everybody for reaching out, uh, everyone that watched and, and had – uh, you know, good things to say, criticisms to to give us. Um, everything really, really helped us out. Uh, had a blast getting to do that with our kids, letting them get on ESPN and some exposure, and and really just getting to play football again. So had a blast with that. We also got to watch Coach Walls's team uh, online. So uh, it's been a great, great few weeks of getting to play football. Hopefully, you guys are in that same boat as we are um, this month. We are putting in our newest episode of Talkin' Ball. We just uploaded it yesterday. Uh, it's, it's with Coach Millison from Emporia High School in Kansas. So all of our RTP Premium members, you guys can go check that out right now over at runthepower.com. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Guardian Caps. Do you have linemen? Are their helmets getting scuffed up during inside run period? If so, there's a way to protect those shells and reduce the repetitive blows your guys are taking during the week. Guardian Caps reduces 20 to 33% of the impact, really focusing on those big guys in the trenches, like we coach. Worn by Clemson, Texas, Oklahoma, Washington, Virginia, 150 other colleges, and over 1,500 high schools across the country, including mine at Broken Arrow and Coach Walls in Ankeny. They are currently running an early bird promo. It's an unbelievable uh, price for them right now. 40 caps for $2,000 with 10 of them for free, plus 10 free. To get 10 free ones as well. Check them out in our, free show, uh, in our show notes or go to guardiansports.com slash football. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Team Builder. Team Builder provides strength and conditioning software to high schools around the country. Whether you write your own programs, have a full-time strength coach, or need training programs, Team Builder can make your program better. Right now, Team Builder is offering a 10-week off-season football training program with a two-a-day speed and agility program. This template even comes with videos from some of the top SEC strength coaches that will show you how to run your weight room. Visit their website and enter the code RTP to get the off-season football training template and start your 14-day completely free trial at teambuilder.com. Again, enter code RTP at teambuilder.com, which is team, B-U-I-L-D-R, dot com. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by our guys over at Just Play. The team at Just Play hooked us up with their product, as you guys know, uh, and it's been a game changer for us, if you've seen us on Twitter or uh, have talked to us about this at all. We obviously especially love the playbook tools that allow us to create our favorite blocking schemes, as you guys know, power, counter, inside zone, pin and pull, uh, and formations, so we can save time and be more productive. That's the biggest part. Saves time on defenses, saves time on on inputting offensive uh, formations, and then Easy to draw the play out. Just play is a limited time offer for RTP listeners only. Get my just play pro for $120, which is an unbelievable $60 off the normal list price. Uh, this offer has been extended uh, and won't last forever. You can get this deal at just slash RTP, the best playbook tool on the market at Justplaysolutions.com slash RTP. Don't wait, go do it today. On this episode of RTP, we talk with Tremaine Jackson. Coach Jackson is the head coach at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, Colorado. Listen as we talk to Coach Jackson about developing a great pass rush, his defensive philosophies, and his journey from defensive coach to becoming a head coach. You can follow Coach Jackson on Twitter at CoachJack212. Hope you guys enjoy.
1: Well, like I said, I'm from Houston, Texas, Uh, played at Waltrip High School. And from there, uh, I went to the University of Louisiana Monroe for a couple of years, Um, decided to transfer out where I was a D lineman there, Uh, transferred back home to Texas Southern where I finished my career, Uh, ended up playing O-line. So I I, I was a college lineman. When people say, what position did you play? I just just played on the line. and so I kind of I knew I wanted to get into coaching when I got done playing, um, kind of sat, sat out a season after I finished and just said, hey, what do you really want to do? And got into coaching really by coaching a semi-pro football team in San Antonio um, in, the, in the spring of 2006. And it was my first coaching job, but I was the offensive coordinator. I really thought I was running a high-powered offense. Um, and we practiced twice a week. Had the time of my life. So from there, I went to NM Kingsville, uh, where I was a D line coach, and then went to Trinity Valley to get what I say is my first paying job—a whopping five hundred dollars a month—and uh, <laughs> was the dorm director at Trinity Valley, along with being the D line coach. And then I got a chance to come back to Texas Southern, uh, and I stayed for four years. One as the tight end coach. Uh, three as the D-line coach, and then my last year, uh, adding the defensive coordinator title to that. And uh, was played some really good defense there, won a championship. I was fortunate enough to do some good things, but there was a change. And so I was able to go to uh, Evangel University, my first NAIA school, um, in 2012 as a defensive coordinator. Left there, went to Sioux Falls, which I thought I was going to Sioux Falls for about nine months just to get back in the NCAA, Uh, went as the D-line coach and ended up staying there four years total, three as the defensive coordinator. And that was probably the most special time in my career. We went 32-5 and at a place with 800 students and um, was able to win the championship there and our last year going undefeated in the regular season. Went to Lindenwood University with the head coach from Sioux Falls for about eight days. Um, and then, I, then I got the call uh, from Abilene Christian a guy named Adam Dorrell who had been you know if you know anything about Division II football uh, probably the most successful in, in this era uh, being at Northwest Missouri State And so got a chance to go with him work with him for two years left him and went to Texas State for the 2019 season as the D-line coach and then uh, right before Christmas got the job at Mesa so I've been able to coach football on every single level, man, of scholarship football from junior college all the way to the FBS. So it's been a a real journey.
0: Well, Coach, I'm excited to talk to you, you know, a little bit about defensive line. And and I've had, you know, I've been on some places where they say they've got great defensive line. You know, when I was at Houston, we had several defensive line coaches, and and our defensive line loved a couple of them uh, and thought a few of them weren't any good. Uh, yeah. And and me on the offensive side, uh, being a dumb offensive lineman, you know, I, I never knew and never thought to ask, well, what makes this guy so good? What makes this guy so bad? I just knew the kids played hard and, and really liked certain ones and, and wasn't a big fan of of some of the other coaches that they had. Um, and then I get to go and, and train, you know, for the NFL and and they brought in and and I'm I don't remember his name, but he was a an old short guy. Um, Mm -hmm. And they all said he was like the NFL defensive line guru that -hmm. came in and and worked with a bunch of guys as well. Um, And and unfortunately I didn't get to stick around him, you know, long either, because I was doing my, my offensive line thing. What, Mm -hmm. and, and this is a very general question, so I apologize for it, but what makes, you know, what are some of the big things that defensive line coaches are looking to do with their defensive linemen? Because from an offensive lineman, I know I'm over, uh, over, you know, making this too easy because mostly, you know, offensive linemen don't like defensive linemen uh, in, in general as far as on when they're playing. But, uh, you know, you always think of, hey, be really uh, strong and athletic and beat the offensive lineman, and go tackle the guy with the football. Obviously, there's, there's more to that. What, what does make a good defensive line coach? What are some of those big things that you're looking for uh, to develop and, and do with your defensive line?
1: Yeah, so, you know, to, in my opinion, and, and I'm, I, I often call myself a jag, just a guy uh, when it comes down <laughs> to D line play because there's so many ways of doing it. But over the years, I've I felt like that is three different ways to, play, to coach defensive line. You're a technician, which all you care about is technique, technique, technique. Um, you're an emotional coach, which you can get the kids to play extremely hard. Um, and you might not spend as much time on technique, but you're you're coaching the effort, you're coaching to get to the football with bad intentions. And then there's the guy that can do both. Um, and I've always prided myself on trying to be the guy that can do both. Um, and because I think that being the defensive line coach, you have to be emotional. Uh, you're the big guys that get to run all over the field, like you said. Nothing against offensive lineman, because I played it, but <laughs> it, it's a little boring at times to play uh-huh. offensive line. And so uh, as a defensive lineman, you know, you, you got to stick your hand in the dirt, hit a man in the chest, possibly get hit in the face, turn and run to the ball. And so to, to do those things over and over again, I've always thought you need a lot of emotion. Uh, but it is a very technical game, just like the line play, uh, on the other side as well. And so I've, I've tried to do both in my career. Um, and, and when you say what makes a good defensive lineman, I think guys that play extremely well with their eyes, hands, and their feet, make extremely good defensive lineman. And uh, guys that can play fast, uh, get their hands on people, get on and off blocks. Um, and, and some people say, well, don't, don't get blocked. Well, that's, that's just not possible. There's going to be <laughs> some touching of each other. And so you got to get on and get off the block as soon as you can and then turn and get to the football and make plays. I think that makes good defensive linemen.
0: Coach, I, I've i always said, you know, and, and it's my conspiracy theory in my head, but, you know, if a defensive lineman gets one sack a game, then he's got an, you know, offensive lineman has has stopped him for maybe 50, you know, pass rushes. But on 51, he makes a sack, and he does that every single game. Then, you know, he's got a 15-sack season and, and had yep. an unbelievable season, one sack a game. So, uh, you know, my conspiracy theory behind it is a guy could just, set up for one single move the entire game. Lowell's got to <laughs> sleep, hit the move yeah. one time, and, and now he's got a huge sack. What I'm sure obviously there's more to that, but how much goes into on some of these pass, passing downs early yeah. on setting up certain moves that you're going to lose later in the game? It, does that go on, or is it more of a feel thing? Every time I feel this rush, I'm going to hit this rush, uh, I've also heard D-line coaches say, have an idea before you start. But then I've heard defensive line coaches say, you know, work into, you know, whatever the offensive lineman gives you. What are yep. your thoughts on, on you know, on the third and long, on the team that throws the ball around all the time, on those pass rush moves?
1: I, I think pass rush is tailor-made for the individual. Um, and I think what what I've always tried to do is not make all the pass rush moves I like be forced up on the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried to give them a toolbox of pass rushes. And then once we work them during spring ball, during fall camp, uh, we narrow it down to what are the top three for that individual guy. And then we we give them some, you know, people talk about indie time in practice. Well, I've always given D linemen true indie time without me so that they can work on their three specialized pass moves. Mm-hmm. Um, coaching, coaching. Division two, FCS, NAIA, before I got to Texas State, I tried to really help those guys regardless of what we saw on tape um, because I thought that the offensive line play, which we were playing on those levels, um, they were pretty generic. When I got to Texas State, it was obvious that certain guys were faulty to certain moves. Um, and so we really studied that, especially at end on third down, we, we said, all right, man, this guy's a high-hand setter. Uh, well, setter. We got to finesse him. Or he's a soft-hand setter. We got to punch him. And I, I remember it vividly. We're playing against Arkansas State last year, and we knew that this left was opening the gate. And so um, we call it opening the door, not opening the gate, but he opened the door. And we said, hey, if he opens that door, He's going to go kick, kick, open, and when he opens the door, you need to long arm him, rip and go under, and you'll get a sack. And that's exactly what happened on the second, third down of the game. Uh, and so it became more specialized even from film study and tailor-made for certain guys uh, once once I got there. So I learned a lot in pass rush just in that one year, uh, last year.
0: I think that, that long arm is, is cheating, Coach. I mean – <laughs> It was my it was my kryptonite. It was my kryptonite. That yep. it just it was it was unbelievable. And those guys that were made for it. Those long armed, strong guys. Mm-hmm. You get that one long arm in you, um, yep. and the ones that did it well, man, it was it was almost impossible. Because then again, you start leaning into it to try to set it down and, and mm-hmm. they hit hit an inside move on you or, you know, yep. you try to, you know, swipe it with the wrong hand and then they work that shoulder. Those guys that set up a whole pass rush off of that one long arm, mm-hmm. um, to me as an offensive lineman, uh, I, I hate – I completely hated it.
1: I'm telling you, it it is um, – you know, and here's the deal. You like to have guys with long arms, but guys with short arms that are strong can do it too. And those guys end, end up really being able to what we call stab and steer, which is shoot for that uh, right underneath the throat area. You're not going to hit him in the throat. You're going to hit him dead center in the chest and be able to steer that guy and take the inside move. And so uh, we, that's, we, we try to set everything up off of it. And offensive linemen and offensive line coaches know that. They know that the long arm is coming. And – it still works. <laughs> so, so it's not a secret, and it's still working. So um, it, I think it's one of the best, the best pass rush moves out there.
2: Coach, when you teach that, I mean, like, what is kind of like the aiming point or the, the objective? I mean, kind of walk through maybe just a few coaching points for, you know, the teaching of that move, to, especially to guys, you know, that maybe have some natural ability to use it. Yeah. You know, how do you kind of enhance it or, or, or teach those guys a little
1: bit more? Well, it starts with that get-off always. Um, it starts with the get-off, and then the, the key has, for me has always been when, when do you stab? When do you throw that long arm? And so we always tell guys, and this goes back to the tailor-making part, um, you throw the arm when you get in your arm range distance, and that's different for everybody. A guy with short arms, it might take him five or six steps, to get in that frame where he can throw, stab, and lean. Uh, a guy, with the, a longer guy with, a, with longer arms, he might be able to get into it in three steps. And so we try to, once we figure out what you are in the step count and when to throw that long arm, we then go to where? Well, I want to stab and take my, the, the, the heel of my hand with my thumb slightly up, and I want to punch for your throat. Because I know he's going to eventually be higher. If it it works like we want it to, we're going to be low, he's going to be higher, and we want to throw for underneath the throat. And again, I always tell guys, we're not actually trying to punch him in the throat, but that's what you see. You see right underneath uh, of that face mask or the helmet that that we call it the sweet meat. It's kind of that fat neck area um, (laughs) right underneath the chin and where where the shoulder meets. We want to stab it right there. The, in the NFL, that's where the NFL logo is, uh, right on the collar of that neck. And so we want to stab there. And if I hit anything lower than that or higher than that, I've got good surface in order to steer. Because most guys do what we call stab and steer and be able to take that inside move once that O-lineman uh, overcommits. If he doesn't, we, what we give, we have the right to take away, is what we tell him. And so if I give him a stab and I go to press it and it ain't there, I need to take it back, come on over and go by. And so we teach it in that progression uh, because it has the the counters already built in. When I was a player, I had a D-line coach that said, got to have moving the counter, moving the counter, moving the counter. Everything was moving the counter. And so that's in my mind. But we try to give our kids things that have counters built in that are easy. And so – uh, we what well, we tell them, hey man, what the good Lord giveth, he can take it away, and so can we in pass rush, uh-huh. and uh, and that's that's kind of how we teach that move.
0: I love it, Coach, uh, and and there I knew a lot of guys that, that I think they claim they were they weren't going for the neck, but I think they were. <laughs> I think I, I think they were coming after. There there was a few. There had to be a few fights in one on one practices. Oh, they no doubt came after the neck. Uh, I no but, but lo- but loved it though. But um, I-, I got beat with that really bad. And then we played at East Carolina um, and, and I you know talk about opening that door. I was mm-hmm. opening the door. We, you know, we threw it 60, 70 times that game mm-hmm. opening the door and I got beat with it probably three times. Uh, mm-hmm. I opened the door. The guy uses what I would assume like a Reggie Jackson um, kind of hit Reggie Smith, whatever. Just, he hits me with the inside club. So oh, I kind of turned, open. oh yeah, on the inside and it crushed my world. I, I was <laughs> a sophomore in college and I still have nightmares about it to this day, coach. I mean, it was, yep. and I had no idea what to do to fix it. I was just, because uh, he was so much faster than me off the edge that that was his two moves. I mean, he yep. was so fast off the edge that I had to really sell out to it. And then as soon as I turned, boom, he's humping inside of it and it was, it was deadly.
1: We tell guys, if you can get his hips open and locked where he can't recover, then you're, that's the one time where we have the advantage because we can stab that outside foot, come back, and hump underneath. And his hips are locked. And so, uh, you know, day one in pass rush at, at anywhere I've ever been, we teach we, – we make our kids stand in front of just a regular door and say, okay, that's you, the door is the offensive lineman. It, it, your hips and his hips are facing each other, nobody can go through the door. Somebody's hips has to open in order for you to go through the door. You open the door, it's the door's hips that open. You open your hips, you can get through on another man. and so we try to teach that open door theory early on in a guy's career, and but we tell him on that stab, you know if, if his hips are locked, we can stab and come back. We call it stab and steer, but there is the stab and club which is plant on the outside foot and come violently with the inside hump move. And I've seen guys be turned all the way around in the circle. Might have been you I saw, Riley.
0: It was probably me. <laughs> it was probably me. I don't even think the guy ended up being a, you know, I, I didn't have problems with a lot of the big-name guys, supposedly, that we went against. But, man, he kicked my butt with it. Um, and I'm, I'm so happy that no one else tried it the rest of my career. But it, it's messed me up, Coach. Yep,
1: yep. Yeah. Well, it's definitely one that I, I got to keep teaching.
0: <laughs> That's right. Well, so, you're,
2: Go ahead, Walsh. I, I was just going to say, you know, another thing, you know, with, with the stab, is that something you guys kind of, you know, br- you break that into pieces or is that something, you know, you're, you're having to do, you know, just a, a ton of get-offs, a ton of one-on-one pass rush and, and you kind of get your reps that way? Or is it something, you know, hey, I want to make sure my outside foot's in the ground when I, when oh. I throw that jab and that punch, you know, is that yes. something you kind of break down, or is it, is it man, it, we're just doing it on the move and then we watch it on film?
1: No, it, it is something that we break down into a whole progression. Um, you know, it. Anywhere I've ever been a D-line coach, we don't have just a whole lot of pass rush moves. Um, you know, I was fortunate the intern with the Texans uh, when Mario Williams was there in 09 and, and just kind of watching him. He didn't have a lot of moves, man, and he, I just asked him. I'm like, man, Mario, how many? how many uh, pass rush moves do you, do you carry into a game? He was like, what? One. I'm just going <laughs> to speed pass everybody. And I went, okay, well, here's a guy making $100 million that's just speed rushing all the time. And so we, we really looked at what we were teaching um, and, and tried to keep it simple. And that way, everything that we teach, we can break down in a progression of its own so we can teach the initial, we can teach the move, and we can teach the counter. And then guys get a real feel for it. The one thing, you know, Brady, we've never allowed, I don't like spinners. I don't, I don't. I think when you spin, you lose sight of the ball. And in today's game, the ball is gone. And so you gotta be really special to be able to spin. So that's the one progression we don't teach. But all the other things of how to transition your feet, shift your hips, move your weight, and make, make sure you're always going same hand, same foot when you're making a contact on an old lineman we, we try to spend a lot of time on those things, so uh, it's we teach that stab in its own progression.
0: Well, coach, you know another just kind of since we're on pass pro and and I'm talking about all my faults, but um, <laughs> another thing that that always messed me up was it was like I'd have a I'm a tackle I've got a three technique inside and mm-hmm. and it's not a slant there's no blitz coming you can tell all that so in theory that end should never be allowed to come underneath because there's no contain
2: mm-hmm. but
0: every once in a while the end would come underneath and it would always screw me up because by the football rules he's not <laughs> allowed to come underneath but then with he does, that's yep. right with a three technique or or with you know no one's blitzing outside no one's mm-hmm. looping uh I don't see any of that he comes underneath and there's no contain and yep. and makes the sack and uh, I just I I hated that so much <laughs> is that something that you know, you give latitude to your ends if they're good enough to do something like that. Uh, yeah. is that just hey, he guessed right, and so I'm not gonna you know scream at him because he he made the sack. How does how does a play like that, similar to that, happen uh, as a process on the defensive side?
1: Yeah, okay. so so you know it's funny, Roder, you say that because we we allow our ends to make under calls um, based off the week, and you know we see a tackle that's that's struggling with the under move. We might be in a wide front where the ends are out wide. We've got a three in the shade. And that end could go, hey, I'm going under. And as a three technique, you probably get pissed because you want to rush and have your two-way go. But when he gives that under call, then you know I got to slow my rush up as the inside guy to be able to make that contain right. So we don't vacate the contain, but we, we teach our tackles. And because I'm a nose guard by trade, I go, hey, man, pass rush really ain't for you. You're a pocket pusher. <laughs> um, and so let's just be honest. The ends make all the money in pass rush. You make all the money in the A and B gaps. So if you hear under call, then just be ready to come out of your rush and loop for contain. Uh, but we also give the inside guys free latitude to really chew into the end if he don't make a play and stop making those undercalls. But we've got some fronts designed to where that end can make an under call. And, um, you know where we we really you know nowadays you rush wide you rush wide 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 so much until we get guys to open the door and then you can beat them underneath with speed and so uh, we try to utilize that but but we we actually give them the freedom to make the call and sometimes I haven't given them a freedom to make the call and the guys made the sack and I've said yeah I gave them the freedom to make that call. <laughs> <laughs> That's just great coach, and I love yeah, that. Yeah, You know, we give him the freedom to make that call here. That stunt is
2: my all-time favorite. I love, you know, like you said, the speed dudes off the edge, and then they yep. go under, especially when you get on the different levels. And yep. it, I, I've seen it so many times where literally, you know, the two or the three, he makes the sack because, you know, the quarterback sees the mm-hmm. dude go under and he flushes him. That's Alf, it. You got, you got an athlete at that three technique. I hated that one because there's no line. There's nothing you can do. And the quarterback, you know, it's hard to tell him, man, hey, the guy went under, you know, I'm I'm going to get flushed to my right or flushed to my yeah. left. And a lot of times, you know, you'd flush flush guys to their, their left hand so they slow down. Mm-hmm. There'd be so many three techniques that would just get free sacks. I loved it.
1: Well, you know, I'm a four-down guy, Brady, and by, by trade. Uh, was in a three-down – been in a three-down front a couple of places. But last year especially – where when you get that, when you're in a drop eight style defense and you get that spy guy from a linebacker position, then you really want to get those five techniques wide and, and make them go under. Uh, so you can flush the quarterback because you got the spy guy uh, sitting right there underneath and he's a better, a better runner than what your DEN or your D tackle would be. And so, you know, I really like the underneath stuff out of three down more so than even four down.
2: Yeah, you've seen a lot of guys go to that, especially you'll see, you know, the teams the third and long that play two man, mm-hmm. every, you know, every offensive coordinator in America. Oh, it's two man. I'm going to run the quarterback. Well, now yep. you guys pick up an extra hat. You can twist with the, the three. Yep. One guy is going to cover the back. The other guy's got the quarterback. You guys get mm-hmm. the best of all worlds. I love that third down defense too.
1: No doubt. No doubt. We led, we were top 10 in the country at Abilene Christian in 2018 on third down by doing And we probably did that 60 to 75% of the time Um, on third down, just third and five plus that was our go-to playing coverage behind it. And we would do it with a defensive end standing up as a spy, uh, having a zero nose with a defensive end in a, in a walked up shade, or we do it from uh, having a backer, just an inside backer sitting at at backer depth and spying. And, And it was, we were able to get people to go where we wanted them to go and have a a runner at the quarterback, which I thought was huge.
2: Is that something you'd kind of game plan then weekly based on, you know, maybe how they do, you know, their five-man protection check, six-man? How do you guys kind of go through, hey, do we put a stand-up DN there? Do we use a linebacker? What's the thought process behind that?
1: I'll be honest with you guys. Me as a defensive coordinator, even though I'm a D-line coach, I didn't spend a whole lot of time on – Dictating protections. And I, I mean, uh, not dictating them, but breaking down protections. I understood how they worked, uh, but I was going to dictate what you – how you could protect things based on the front that we gave you. And so we, we saw what they did on third down, but I was like, oh, I, you know, we, I, we sit down as a defensive staff and go, well, what do you think about uh, the spy front? Yeah, I like it, but I think this week I'm going to walk this guy over here just to screw with him a little bit, and then we'll still end up getting what we want. So we tried to really dictate uh, how people were protecting us throughout the game, not necessarily based on what they did on film, if that makes sense. Uh, But we – I just like jacking with offensive line coaches in my opinion. (laughs) Just to be honest, we were were able to to get them to turn us free because when you prepare for us, because I'm a D-line guy, we were going to show you so many different fronts that you wasn't going to be able to practice them all during the week. And then when it came to third down, that's when we really got fancy. So we kind of knew how you were going to have to protect it, or we knew you were going to end up sliding it because you didn't want to deal with all the, all the, the things that we were doing. So we really, when we caught you slide we really had something for you there. So wasn't a major breakdown. We just kind of deal what we felt like, if that makes sense. And, uh, was able to get home,
0: Coach. You've talked. You know. You said a little bit that that you were. You know. Initially, you've been three down, obviously, but in a four down. And and I've talked to. You know. I got to be in Houston, so I got to talk to some of those NFL mm-hmm. guys, and and they got really into talking about how you know the NFL got into such a spot where left tackles are getting paid all the big money up front, and so mm-hmm. obviously you want to have a really good you know defensive rush end. But what they started saying is with people not paying guards as much that they were really going after having a three technique opposite mm-hmm. of the left tackle, be mm-hmm. kind of their dude, you know, yep. looking to find a, a pass rush and three technique because center's going to probably slide over to the, to the guy at defensive end. And now you're leaving a guard that's, you know, a lot of times you're slower mauler type guy as opposed to mm-hmm. tackle, uh, you know, man with a three technique uh, yep. has that, does that correlate to the college level? Because it's, 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 you know, obviously it's not a money thing. In the NFL, you only get so much money to pay people. And so you got to pay more to your tackles. And then you got receivers and quarterbacks and all that. Does that trickle down? Does that, or does that, you know, effect happen at the college level? Are you guys looking to have a, a, obviously you'd like to have everyone be awesome pass rushers. But are, <laughs> Are you looking for a you know a dude at pass rusher uh, at the opposite three technique? How does that work in, in the college game?
1: You know, you know, for us at Mesa, we look to be huge on the interior in our four down and have speed guys at the end because what we see is lighter in division two. We see lighter, not as strong guys at tackle. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and so we try to match big guys with big guys. Uh, on the interior because we see the big guys at guard for run game reasons. And, and we see more of the athletic tackle. Um, and so that's what we try to spend our money more so on the outside on defense. I'll tell you this, being in the Sun Belt last year, um, that holds true. Those tackles in the Sun Belt were really good. But the center and two guards, they were average as the day is long, kind of like mm-hmm. what we see on our level now. Uh, at a lot of schools. Now, Louisiana Lafayette was the mini Alabama, so they were the exception <laughs> uh, because they do a really good job. But um, So, yeah, I could see that, you know, being in the Sun Belt, you did you, – we played with a four-eye, but when, when we could get that four-eye matched up on that guard in a pass rush situation, I felt really good about winning uh, because people do, in Division One, especially, they, those tackles are are legit. I mean – you look at App State, and App State had a tackle that's built like God. I mean, I was just <laughs> like, whoa, man, this dude, if I could take a picture with him, I would. Um, but so we knew we were going to have a hard time. Longer guy, longer arms. But on the interior, they look like me. And and I felt like we could take advantage of that. So I think it depends on the level. Definitely in Division II, uh, you know, in our conference especially, we 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 see the lesser guy on the outside
0: gotcha that makes sense uh so so talking about having the big guys in the interior, what mm-hmm. is your what's your thoughts or what's your recruiting process as far as height goes height goes for mm-hmm. a nose and a three technique you know obviously again I think it looks great on a roster to have a six five three hundred thirty pound you know three technique and nose guard um yep. but Honestly, when I was at the Houston, uh, those guys were never the guys that gave us a ton of problems. You know, mm-hmm. we played Cincinnati one year, and I, I don't know, maybe both of their interior guys were six foot tall. But mm-hmm. me, it was almost impossible to get those guys out of the hole. I mean, it, you weren't running it against those guys. It was, it was truly, it was unbelievable, really how good some of those shorter guys were, you know, whether it's leverage or strength. I don't know what it was. But what is your philosophy when you're recruiting, you know, the shade and the three technique or the nose guard and the, and the tackle as far as height goes um, with that position?
1: Yeah, so I think to know, to know my, my story as a player, you, you would understand my recruiting philosophy interior-wise. I was a 5'11 nose guard. But, man, Rowdy, I thought I could do it. Um, <laughs> I would have so, hated playing against your coach. <laughs> so, you know, when I became a coach, obviously, yes, you like the bigger guy, but the places I've been, the 6'5", 315-pound guy that's a guy, I wasn't able to get him. And so mm-hmm. we've had, man, anywhere from a guys that are 5'9", to 6'5". We tell our guys the bigger the better, obviously, but mainly we kind of sacrifice the height requirement for the stoutness of the guy. You know, we want him to be able to hold up in the run game. How does he play a double team? If he's 5'9", with a low center of gravity, that doesn't mean that he can still play a double team. If he's 6'4", that doesn't mean he's going to be high either. So we really try to watch those things and make sure guys are stout on the interior because we don't want anybody running the ball in the A and B gaps. We want that ball to go C gap and beyond. And so we, it's not so much height, it's stoutness. Last year Texas State, I had a, a, a starter. Uh, well, he was a true freshman. He would have been the starter, but he played a lot. He was five nine, two sixty five. Wow! But he will fight you, and you're gonna hear, you're gonna see that kid in the future <laughs> because he was just a winner. You know, how sometimes you get a kid that's just a pure winner. Mm. One state in high school, you couldn't tell him he wasn't the best thing going. Kind of reminded me of myself, uh, except minus the state championship stuff. <laughs> but he. Uh, you know, those kids kids that are like that, that are shorter, got something to prove with a chip on their shoulder, they seem to be really stout. And you can do a little bit more with them um, on the interior as well as far as movement because they're quick enough to move. The bigger the guy, sometimes that guy might not be able to move as well and square back up. He kind of gets pushed in the wash and things of that nature. So we look for guys that are just stout enough to hold up and do what we do um, without having the height requirement per se on it.
2: Coach, I'm interested now. You know, shifting gears just a little bit. You know, kind of talking to you about you know, making the transition now. You know, from position coach to coordinator to now, you know, being being the head honcho out there in Mesa, which is a beautiful area, by the way. Loved it when I was out in Colorado. But you know, you've you've worked for some some really good dudes, and you know, one of the guys I know, and you talked about your run at Sioux Falls. But you know, mm-hmm. Coach Stugart, I mean, to, to mm-hmm. me, kind of one of the the consummate you know head coaches. You know, seems like a CEO guy defensive minded, you know, nope. wondering if you've if you've kind of taken some of the things he's done because his formula has been really, really solid. Yep. And, and then yep. obviously, you know, putting your own spin on it. But, you know, I'm interested to kind of hear, you know, what what the plan is to, to get it rolling at Mesa.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you this, man. Jed Stewart has been really influential in my career. I've been really blessed um, because you hear about all these big name guys and in, in the power five and things of that nature. Um, but, but the best coaches I've had and been around have been division two NAIA guys and Jeff Stewart is one of them. Um, what we were able to do at the University of Sioux Falls, in my opinion, is second to nobody because we didn't have all the scholarships. We only had 800 students in, on campus, 110 of them played football. And we were able to roll up in a, in a, in a pretty brutal NSIC conference and go 32 and five over three years and take a team to the second round of the playoffs. Uh, or postseason every year in those three years. And so um, Jed Stewart, what, what he taught me as a head coach, uh, me being his defense coordinator, I've taken a lot of that. Um, I'm not going to call the defense. I've hired a guy that, that was with us at Sioux Falls to call the defense, and, and uh, he's coming from Lindenwood. And so I, I've taken the CEO approach uh, here at Mesa. Not saying that I don't watch that D-line, Rowdy. I'm watching that D-line, man. Uh, But and Brady I'm telling you it's tough but I was able to hire a guy uh, that played for me at Texas Southern so he understands what we want D-line play to be Uh, but I was more interested when I took this job I felt like I had been preparing my whole career to affect the football program and I didn't want to just do that on one side of the ball I wanted it was going to be understood that I was a defensive minded guy I think you have to be to win championships Uh, We see a lot of guys scoring points, but they're giving up points, and they're not winning championships. Uh, And so our program is built on defense, but I also didn't want our kids to feel like all I cared about was defense because I've been with guys that coach or coordinated one side of the ball with being the head coach, and I always felt like there was a disconnect. And some people say it's not. um, The places I've been, I felt like it was, and I didn't want our team to be disconnected. And – and and I felt like when I took this job that there was a true disconnect in the program. Uh, we needed to mend some things and become a closer net team. And I felt like as the head coach, I could do that. Uh, and so I didn't want to take one side of the ball or the other. I, we've had a really good staff here. They all understand the expectation. Uh, and, and so I can't wait to get on a field with these guys here soon at some point.
0: Coach, how are you going to do that? I, I just... Uh, sound like you can just hear how passionate you are for defense and, and especially for defensive line. And, and that's how at least I like to think of myself as far as offensive line goes. And and anytime anyone talks about being a head coach, it's it's like, but, but then I got to give up on, on offensive line. Then I got to what, hire someone and trust them with, with my offensive line. And and it just seems like I'm too young or or too, whatever. I wouldn't be able to do it at this point. What do you, (laughs) what, How how do you think you're going to – or how is that going to be for you that first time, those first few practices? I'm not sure if you guys got to have spring ball with, with everything going on. But yeah. but how – you know, are you, are you nervous? Are you anxious for that part, not being around those guys? And and I'm sure that's probably going to be the hardest part from, from what I hear from coaches all the time is yeah. you, you get to know all the kids on your team, but you don't have that really super tight relationship, tight-knit relationship that you – normally have with those, you know, 10, 15 guys?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it won't be very tough at all, Rowdy, to be honest. Um, I've been preparing to do this for a while. And so even when I was a coordinator, I walked around. Um, I, didn't, I didn't coach the D-line at my last two places as a coordinator. And so I kind of had started preparing for that because, you know, line play is something you can get lost in, man. That's a different bond than the DBs. Right. Or the, or, the, or the linebackers, or the, especially the receivers. And I'm always watching them wide outs because they're they so cute. Uh, <laughs> over there and so, um, but I, I've kind of been preparing for it. And, uh, and I, I do think I'm, I'm going to challenge the notion that you can't be, have a strong relationship with the whole team. I think you can. I think that's the one thing that COVID has done for us. We didn't get a chance to go to spring ball, but we were able to do, uh, winter workouts and skill instruction that we have on this level. And so I was able to be out there for every positional skill instruction. Um, and I, I wanted to make it be intentional on those guys getting to know me and me get to know them so that we can be a close knit team. So honestly, I'm trying to challenge that notion because I've heard that too. Uh, I think you can, I think it's time consuming. Uh, and so you have sure. to discipline yourself to do it. But um, I, I think for me, where this program was and, and when we got here, I needed to be accessible to the whole team in order for us to have a fighting chance come the fall.
0: Coach, now being the head coach and, and being a defensive coordinator, do you think that you have to mold your defensive coordinator or your philosophy as a defensive coordinator with what your offense does? Do, do those, and maybe not you need to mold, maybe the offense needs to mold to yours, but do you think that those – Coordinators have to be on the same page, Uh, you know. uh, All the the question really comes from: uh, I go to Houston and we're air raid, and and we had some coordinators that were, "Hey, don't give up the big, you know, the big deep play, and keep everything in front of us, and and you know, yada yada with that, and that worked well. And then we had a guy, you know, uh, Gibbs came in, um, Mm -hmm. and and it seemed like to me his whole thing was, "Hey, if we get, you know, it's not going to look as pretty on my stats, but if we get two, three turnovers a game." If our offense is as good as they say they are, we should mm-hmm. win every game. We got three, two or three turnovers. You know, mm-hmm. but, but maybe if that was his philosophy and he was at um, Wisconsin, maybe that doesn't work as well You know, with that type of an offense. Do you think now as a head coach, is that something that is important to you, that the coordinators work well together with what each of them is doing and, and how that collects as a group? Um, yeah. or, or am I looking a little too much into that?
1: No, I, I think, you know, for, for us, um, you know, the term complementary football is kind of what's floating around there now. Um, I think football should always be complementary. Um, I think if you're up-tempo and the up-tempo ain't working, you need to be able to be not up-tempo anymore. <laughs> you need to be able <laughs> to have multiple tempos. And so I want – you know, we're a multi-tempo team on offense. Um, but on the same token, I'm not willing to bail our defense out because our offense is going fast. And I think that's an excuse on why you're getting beat or ran up and down the field. Um, I, I'm with the notion that you need takeaways, uh, but I'm also with the notion that you need stops on third down. And I don't care how many times our offense goes three and out. I've never allowed a defense to, to give up an excuse uh, or to offer an excuse for giving up more than 17 points. We've got standards and goals throughout our program. Everybody needs to achieve and meet the standards and goals of the program regardless of what the other side does. And I've told our team, you know, we we split our buses up into offense and defense and we put some specialists on defensive bus. We put some specialists on the offensive bus. And when we get to the game, we sit on one side, offense. We sit on this side and say we're defense. Well, you came to play defense. You came to play offense you didn't come to look at each other play. That's not, that's not why we're here. We're here to play for each other, but we're not here to watch and criticize what each other is doing. You make sure you're doing, doing what you're supposed to do. You make sure you're doing what you're supposed to do. And we as coaches need to make sure we're making the right adjustments to put our kids in the right spots and, and stop the excuses. I'll be honest with you, Roddy. I saw y'all play a lot. Um, and I always wondered why y'all could score 100 and give up 97. And it it was kind of like, man, I'd probably pass out on the 32-yard line uh, if we gave up all those points. But I think people, defensive coaches, are starting to be like offensive coaches. And I've I've told a lot of guys this. They think I'm crazy. We try to scheme the RPO. We try to scheme the, the dig route. We try to scheme this with all these fancy coverages and things. And what we have vacated is the fundamentals of defense, which is tackling. The essence of defense is still tackling. No matter if the game got moved out in space or whatever, it's still tackling. And if we can get off blocks and run to the football and tackle extremely well, then we got a chance regardless of what they're doing on offense. And we can just play cover two. Or we can just play cover four. We don't have to play all these uh, exotic coverages. And so we don't have that excuse in our program. Uh, everybody is has a job to do we expect everybody to do their job within the rules and values of the program and and nothing less than your best is going to be accepted so i hope that answered your question because i we get that a lot and um and i've always thought it was an excuse now i'm the head coach i can say it without having to say it under my breath that's an excuse <laughs> you know? i love it
2: <laughs> I, coach i love it and i i completely agree with you know the the quote defensive minded head coach, I think they make generally the the better head coaches because I yeah. think in general, and again, you don't want to always speak in you know broad terms, but I think most of the time, those guys have a better understanding of kind of the entire game of football, mm-hmm. you know knowing how how all of the pieces work together, they understand offense they're going to generally be special teams minded because mostly you know defensive players are going to be playing special teams. I think they have a better big picture. I think so many offensive minded, you know, coaches or O coordinators that get into it when they practice, all they're concerned with is scoring points and putting mm-hmm. up big numbers, and mm-hmm. they don't really care about that other side of the ball maybe as much. You know, it's always kind of that that scorned look, like, "Hey, you guys, you guys should be able to stop us." You know, you guys mm-hmm. should just get some turnovers. You know, you should do it. well. It's, it's not that simple. So, I think it's so important and it's so refreshing to see guys with the defensive background, being head coaches? Because in my mind, again, I feel like a lot of those guys make the best head coaches, personally. Well,
1: and, and I agree with you, but I especially agree with D-line guys and, and O-line guys. Like, I'm excited to see the wave of O-line guys are starting to get head coaching opportunities because I think as a lineman, mm-hmm. you, you never get that. You know, you, know, you block – you, you do all this stuff, and then you don't get your name called. Well, at least now, as a lineman, we can be head coaches. But I will tell you this. Uh, I'll never forget this. It's 2014. Uh, we're watching uh, somebody play on TV. It was an FCS game. And, and I saw the head coach of this team go for it on fourth and 13 from the minus 17-yard line. <laughs> and, and I went – I got to be a head coach because that is devastating. <laughs> and and I was just like, man, he. It, it's not a video game. We have to be smart. I wouldn't even do that on Madden. I think NCAA 14 was still out. I wouldn't have done that when, when Michael Vick was on the game. Uh, fourth and 13 from the minus 17 and went for it and didn't get it. And then making the defense – just, they just, the, all the offense just having to go 17 yards to score and you already put them in field goal range. Well, that team lost by a field goal. And it was the field goal that they, that they got on that, um, on that particular exchange. And so, uh, it, you know, just thinking about the whole game, I think it's like you said, Brady, those guys, offensive guys, coordinators especially, we've become so enamored as coaches on pleasing the fans and scoring all these points that we forgot the integrity of the game. <laughs> and I love to score a lot of points, don't get me wrong, but we have to put our kids in position to be successful on every side of the ball. And so, that's kind of where my mind always has been uh, as a defensive coach. And so, you know, I'm glad they gave me an opportunity to be the head coach. Now, if it's fourth and 13 and you guys see me go for it, don't hold me hostage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> long, long as you, long as you guys make it, no problem, Coach. <laughs>
1: Well, we'll be on the plus side of the field. That's what you can get to bottom dialogue.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Well, well coach, kind of, kind of flipping it to recruiting. Um, I'm always interested in in schools that are non the non Power Five schools. You mm-hmm. know that that obviously, if you go in with an with an Alabama shirt on and, and recruit a kid, uh, and you're gonna get a bunch of six seven, you know, three hundred twenty pound monsters that can play football. Um, yep. And but. But the non power five schools, I put, you know, I even put Houston in that uh, mm-hmm. as far as just with this whole statement of those schools have to find kids that are going to develop, or mm-hmm. they've got to find, you know, kids that, you know, at Houston, we had to find the kids that, you know, Sebastian Vollmer from Germany that was six, seven, and 220 pounds, but mm-hmm. they bulked him up in a couple seasons and he was an NFL left tackle. You know, like guys like that, and and the receivers that we had. You know, Patrick Edwards was a walk on, and Tyron Carrier, who was a um, you know a track star. You know, they mm-hmm. they they found different ways, and and I think that the the teams that are really good do that at a an extraordinary level. I would assume a lot of it co- comes down to finding you know at least at at the skill level finding guys that are fast and then developing them into really good football players. And Mm then, you know, I would assume again, as an offensive lineman, just seeing what I've seen is finding some tall, but undersized offensive linemen that can grow into the frame that they have and and that those offensive linemen are athletic, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe they're basketball players that didn't get an off season uh, ever. And so they're, Mm -hmm. they're skinny, but they're super athletic and they're tall. Uh, Mm -hmm. What are, what are you looking for when you're finding some of those kids that Obviously, you've got to recruit some kids that are ready to play right now. But mm-hmm. every school, I think that's non-Power 5, obviously, has to have a percentage of their kids that are developmental kids, which I love about those programs. Yep. Hey, this yep. kid I can see in two or three years being a, you know, Power 5 type kid, but mm-hmm. they weren't able to, to offer this kid because he's not ready for them right now. What are you looking in at, at, at for kids like that?
1: Yeah, just I think you hit it on the head, Riley. just what, you know, longer kids, athletic kids, kids that play extremely hard, that might be slightly underdeveloped, um, making sure we do the eval, not just on their film, but on their home life on why that kid hadn't gained weight. Like you said, is he playing every sport? Um, you know, is he not eating properly? Those things really doing a lot of background and and it's it I think you 're right when you say non power five uh, because everywhere i 've ever been has been non power five and we 've had the same issue um, just trying to fight for kids that everybody 's pretty much fighting for because they 're not they don 't have all the the six sevens the three fifteens they 're not naturally already ready, and so uh, we try to look for those same kids. You know, obviously being on the lower level, we, we try to get some transfer kids that maybe couldn't go to those Power 5 schools uh, for one reason or another, uh, mostly academics. But uh, in our in our high school recruiting, we definitely look for the kids that fight on film. They're tough. Maybe they wrestle in the off season. which being from Texas, wrestling wasn't a big thing for me. It wasn't until I went to the north at, at Sioux Falls where, man, we had some really tough, hard-nosed guys uh, that wrestled in high school. And guys <laughs> understood very good. And they played straight in they
2: played tall. And we had a a great pick. And we drafted in the third round. We So, first game.
1: He pulled, he looked like he was going on a fast break. Um, and he was just kind of one of those guys that nobody really recruited but the Division II schools. And here he turns out to be a third-round draft pick. And I look up one Monday night last year. He started on Monday Night Football. I'm like, Trey, who couldn't do two push-ups at big man camp? (laughs) Um, And and so now he's, you know, he's doing all the pushing up as he goes to the bank with his third-round money. (laughs) And so uh, looking for those type of kids that are under, under the radar but have intangibles on being really good later on
0: coach you know kind of kind of rolling up here here towards the end i don't know much and it sounds like walls i, I know walls lived in colorado and mm-hmm. i'm assuming in this area and, and my you know i've got um uh, relatives that live up towards aspen up on a mountain um, okay. not in aspen but but close to it um i don't know a whole lot about colorado mesa what what are some some things that attracted you Um, attracted you there. I know you said it's got a great setup. Um, There's some Mm -hmm. things that you thought that you could, you could, you know, uh, galvanize with that group. What are some things that when you got that call from them that you're like, man, that would be, that's the place I want to be. This is a place that obviously recruits want to go to. Uh, What are some things that, that kind of sold you on this place?
1: Three things um, that, that really made me extremely interested in Colorado Mesa one uh, I had gotten a chance to see them on film a couple of years ago when I was at Sioux Falls. I thought they were a really talented team. Uh, I thought that they were able to get to – it made me research where they were because of the type of talent that they had on the team. And uh, two, once I did the research, I saw that Grand Junction was beautiful. It might be the best city in the RMAC. A lot of people won't say that uh, because we, we compete against a lot of RMAC schools, obviously, in, in recruiting. But it is, it is beautiful. And I'm from the city. And you know Houston, Rowdy, it's is—it's city now. I mean, it's no (laughs) mountains. It's it's a bunch of pollution and traffic. Well, in Grand Junction, um, it's mountains everywhere. The National Monument is on one side. Um, You got some other mountains that look like the sand that I hadn't been out to yet. It is just a beautiful place. And three, being in Region 4 and Division 2, I felt like it was a really competitive region but there wasn't a lot of schools in the region. And so you had a chance to really recruit out west, because there's not a lot of Division II football out west. And so being in the state of Colorado especially, uh, which there's a lot of good Division II talent in this state. I mean, we can literally build our football team from the state of Colorado. It's not over-recruited like Texas is, uh, where a kid that might be a Division II player in Texas, because he's from Dallas, he could go to the Sun Belt. Uh, these kids understand RMAC football. They want to be in the RMAC. And so it gives us a chance to recruit our own homegrown kids. And so being at a beautiful place, kids want to be there. And, and then I thought this administration man was, was ready to go. So, But those were the top three things that made me interested uh, in this job. And, and I look forward to, again, getting to a field, any field, anytime soon and and really getting with these guys because I think we got a special product here at Mesa.
2: Yeah, I, I love Grand Junction. I mean, I've been out there many times and, and driving through and, and like you said, I mean the, the RMAC in, in Colorado, you know, granted, yes, you have your, your three division one institutions, but you know, being, you know, the history of place like Mesa, you know, Colorado school of mines, CSU Pueblo. I mean, you have big name, Division two schools mm-hmm. that that kids you know, like you said, they know about them. They they follow the programs and they can go there, and they're really really talented. Not to mention, I mean, you have kids in Nevada who are probably under recruited. Kids who are yep. in you know Utah, big linemen that you can go get. I mean, the the area is going to be fertile with you know big defensive linemen that you want to get, big offensive linemen, and then obviously the ability to bring in whatever skill kids you need to from wherever.
1: We we got a really diverse recruiting landscape we can get to vegas we can get to la uh the whole state of colorado we got kids from Wyoming. we got kids from washington texas i mean people when i got this job and i came back to texas recruiting i was surprised i mean people knew about colorado mesa and grand junction more so because like you just said brady they were driving from this place through grand junction on the western slope to get to Denver or driving from Denver to go to uh, Vegas or Phoenix or something like that. Uh, and, and so I was really surprised at the, uh, the welcoming. I thought I was going to get welcomed because I'm from the state, not because I'm at Mesa. And I was really surprised of, of how many people knew about Grand Junction and, and then we were able to introduce Colorado Mesa fully.
0: Well, you're, you're exactly right, coach. It's, it's, uh, like I said, my, my relatives are, in I just looked it up and remember Carbondale, uh, Oh yeah. is really close to Aspen. They live up on a mountain, but it's, it's way different, like you said, than Houston. Um, uh, but, <laughs> but honestly, both of them, both of them made me take about a thousand pictures. When I first <laughs> rolled into Carbondale, I was like, this is unbelievable. When I first, you know, got into Houston, I, yeah, I loved it too, yeah. but, um, it, it really is just, uh, in a kid from Oklahoma, that a there's no mountains around around <laughs> Oklahoma. There's, no, there's nothing. At least in Houston, you guys had a beach you yep. could get to. There's nothing in Oklahoma. Yep. So going in those mountains, driving through those mountains from from Denver to Carbondale, uh, and yep. then the you know, Grand Junction, I believe, just a little west of that. Uh, yep. It's it's on it's, it's jaw dropping uh, for a, for a kid from Oklahoma.
1: Yeah, no, it's beautiful. It's definitely beautiful.
0: Well, Coach, rolling up on an hour now, but, but before we let you go, the thing I always like to ask guys is, is when you're watching another team's offensive line, mm-hmm. what's some things they'd be doing that would make you think highly of their offensive line coach?
1: I think I, I've gotten older now, Rowdy, so I really look at not necessarily the technique, but just how, how hard guys are playing for each other and for their coach. Uh, if a kid makes a mistake and blocks the wrong guy, does he block that guy extremely hard like that was the right guy? If he comes off too early on the double team, does he make the same mistake twice? Um, I've really gotten into watching that in the line play, especially O-line play, because I think you can tell a lot about how a kid is coached and, and what he, what he what he thinks about his coach by how he plays for his coach and how he plays – for the other, the other old linemen. because that, that room is special. I believe uh, those guys, a lot of a lot of places, all they have is each other. Uh, they, again, they don't get their name called, and so how they do things on film tells me directly what they think about their teammates and their coach. And um, and so I've been, I, I know a lot of great old line coaches, and I don't know much about technique, whether you overhand, underhand, whatever you do, but I can tell if your old line loves you by how they play for you.
2: Coach, man, it's been great getting caught up with you again. Uh, you know, the, the biggest compliment I think we, we can give college coaches is, is when, you know, we send players to, to go play at, at your guys' college, mm-hmm. and those kids come back and they say how awesome, you know, Coach Jackson is, and, you know, they, they'd love to have our guys go play for Coach Jackson. So I know, you know, any of the guys that, that we've sent your guys' way and, and any of the kids that I've been lucky enough to have interactions with you. They've said nothing but awesome, unbelievable things. So, Coach Harper and myself, man, we're we're excited for you up at at Mesa, and and we hope you guys light it up up there. And if there's any way, you know, we or our listeners can can help you guys out with players, man, we're ready to rock and roll. Appreciate you coming on.
1: Well, I appreciate you guys. And, and, you know, here's one thing I'll tell you, Brady, we're always going to love the kids, even if they don't love us back. And that's kind of been our M.O., and uh, we're going to keep that going here in Mesa and, and just know whoever's listening, we're going to take care of your kids. Always be honest with them and not put them in politics situations. And so uh, I appreciate you saying that because that's what we strive to do. And that's what we strive to hear on the backside as well. Appreciate you guys for doing this too, man. I feel like I've arrived. Uh, I'm on the RTP, you know, and, and uh, I've been, I've been listening to you guys for a long time and Glenn Caruso um, kind of put me on you guys a long time ago, and so uh, really, really excited to be able to talk to you guys. Well,
0: appreciate it, Coach. And, and one of my favorite players ever that I've coached, his name was Trace Jeffries. He actually okay. was was one of the first that that talked to me about you, and he's on the other <laughs> side of the football of you, but. He yeah. said, I said, you know, Coach Jackson? He said, man, he is an unbelievable coach. Great guy. So, uh, we were, I was really excited to, to talk to you. And you didn't, didn't signed, Coach.
1: I signed him at ACU. I'm going to take that from the O-line coach. I sealed a deal at dinner that night. I, uh, man, it. I
0: believe it. I believe it. He, he's one of my favorite players that I've ever been around